shouldn't talk to them. They're bad. I know. Live from the center of the bass fishing universe, it's time for Bass After Dark, your weekly waypoint to the best conversation and debate in all of fishing. One question, three experts, no rules, and none of the guests know who the other guests will be. All they know is tonight's question. So strap down your rods, put on your life jacket, and fasten your kill switch because here's your host, Ken Duke. Welcome. Tonight's question is, what happened to the chase for the world record largemouth bass? There was a time when that pursuit was positively frenzied, extremely competitive, even cutthroat. As you know, the largemouth is the most sought after game fish on the planet. And the world record is the most coveted in all of sport fishing. But before our guests address tonight's question, I wanna lay some groundwork for what led up to the chase for the world record largemouth. The seeds for the chase were sown 100 years ago in 1923. That's when a man named Fritz Friebel caught a 20 pound, two ounce bass in Florida and entered it in the Field and Stream fishing contest. At the time, Field and Stream was the most popular outdoor magazine in the US. And they had an annual fishing contest in which readers could submit documentation of their catches for a variety of species, including largemouth bass. The heaviest fish in each category won a prize package that in today's economy would be worth more than $1,000. Well, Friebel's catch not only won the contest in 1923, but Field and Stream decided to call it the world's record because it was the biggest fish ever entered in their contest. It marked the very first time that any publication called a fish a world record. Back then, the black basses were not the most popular or respected fish in the country. That would have been the Brook, Brown, and Rainbow Trout group. But bass were making headway fast. And during the Great Depression, through the end of World War II, when most of our big reservoirs were being built, trout habitat was in decline and bass habitat was growing. This pushed the bass into a spotlight it has never left. In 1932, a young Georgia farmer named George Perry entered a 22-pound, 4-ounce largemouth bass in the Field and Stream contest that replaced Freebel's fish as the record. Perry's fish still has a share of the record today. Now let's fast forward to the 1950s for a moment when a fisheries biologist and Major League Baseball player, these two guys, they went out fishing in a California lake. And the baseball player asked the biologist, why are the bass I catch in spring training in Florida so much bigger than the ones I catch anywhere else? Well, the biologist speculated that it must be genetics. And he decided to import some Florida bass to California and stuck them in some lakes around San Diego. At the time, the largemouth record in California was 14 pounds. But within 10 years, it had been broken multiple times by those very same Florida bass. And in 1973, an angler caught a bass weighing just an ounce less than 21 pounds. It was the first certified 20-pounder since George Perry. At the same time, on the other side of the country, an Alabama insurance salesman named Ray Scott was building an organization called the Bass Angler Sportsman Society. It united hundreds of thousands of avid bass anglers and sent the bass boom into high gear. Throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, the chase for the world record largemouth was a regular part of the sport's headline. Helping to stoke that fire, 
Tackle manufacturers would occasionally advertise a bounty on the record. Most of these were small, but in the late 1990s and early 2000s, an organization called the Big Bass Record Club posted multi-million dollar bounties on the record. Of course, the huge bounties didn't last. The Big Bass Record Club couldn't generate enough revenue to afford them. It went out of business, but the chase went on. In 2006, a California angler caught a largemouth weighing an almost unbelievable 25 pounds of one ounce, almost three pounds bigger than the world record. But he snagged it, so it didn't count. Finally, in 2009, 77 years after George Perry, a Japanese angler named Manabu Kurita caught a largemouth weighing 22 pounds, five ounces. It was an ounce heavier than Perry's world record. But because it didn't exceed the weight of Perry's fish by two ounces or more, the primary record-keeping organization called it a tie. And that's where we stand tonight. But the excitement and the buzz about the record, about breaking it, about bringing it back home to the U.S., about cashing in on the endorsements and celebrity, well, that died some time ago. Why? Welcome to Bass After Dark. It's the most illuminating conversation in bass fishing. My name is Ken Duke, and for the next 90 minutes or so, we're going to show you that inch for inch and pound for pound, we are the best show in bass fishing. And now it's time for my most important duty of the night, and that's introducing my co-host, the baddest man on bad, Brian the Carpenter. <laughs> Just when you introduce me to fingers. <laughs> Yeah, where's the there's the thunderous applause we're looking for when you come on yeah it, it knocked the uh ipad loose jarred it a little bit I, I hear it seems like we always have a few technical issues to before every show that's why we launched a couple minutes late here but this is gonna be worth it for everybody who's waiting this is a great show uh i'm really excited about this one btc we got exactly the panel we hope for you can't yes. ask for more than that i love the science man i'm i'm always it's that's always love the science and this is a this is a great topic you know i mean you nailed it and that intro was perfect it, it it's wild because i lived through that you know maybe some of the younger guys didn't but that was a real thing you know everybody was hyped about it and and, and then it just faded out and man what, what happened you know yeah i'm excited to talk about this topic it's, it's not a topic that i've ever heard addressed by anyone much less uh, a panel of the caliber that we've assembled. We've got a couple mm. of scientists. We got a, a magnificent storyteller, and uh, but that's not that's not entirely all of our show. We've actually got something that will come up after this tremendous com conversation that we're about to have. That's uh, right, Ken. There you go. That's right. We've got the top ten, the Bass After Dark top ten, and tonight's top ten. Angler inspired Christmas gift ideas. It's perfect for the season. How Indeed. is it those bass after dark guys keep coming up with stuff that is just so spot on and timely? It's unbelievable. It's, it's shocking and impressive. And that's why I'm a fan of this show. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Well, well, shall we get into it? Shall we, uh, let's, once again, the question? Whatever happened, what happened to the chase for the world record? Largemouth bass. I love it. And and BTC, um, if you don't mind doing the honors, let's let's bring in the best panel in bass fishing. That's right. And tonight we have our first uh, contestant into the ring of fire. Our first guest tonight, expert as you will, a lifelong angler, a best-selling 
New York Times author, uh, wrote Sal Belly, Lord of the Fly. There you go. And Sabin, The Making of a Coach. He's a contributing editor to Forbes, Garden and Gat, or Gun, uh, depending on where you're from in the country. And Drake, we have Mr. Monty Burke. I'm a huge fan. I, I'm not holding up Saban, Monty, but that's only because I went to the University of Georgia. <laughs> where he's known as the devil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they don't have kind words for Kirby in the Alabama side. Well, that's okay. They, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna worry about that. I, I never cared. My mom's from Alabama, but otherwise, I never cared what anybody from Alabama thought. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, man. Of course. Anybody who hasn't read Sal Belly really doesn't know the full story of the world record bass chase because there is no other publication, no other article, no other anything that sums it up as well as your book. And I've been a fan of it for a long time. Fan of your work for a long time. Thank you. Brian, we got we got two more panelists. Indeed, we do, Ken. We have another. We have a fisheries biologist, the director of the Texas Freshwater Fisheries Center, where he promotes leadership for Sherlonker, or provides leadership for Sherlonker and other programs. We have the great Tom Lang. Hey, how y'all doing? Tom, welcome to Bass After Dark. It's a pleasure coming to you live from beautiful Athens, Texas, where we make some of the best bass fishing around. No question about that. And we're going to dig deep into that and exactly what Texas is doing to fire up the world record chase. And, and usually Tom and I are, are watching each other on uh, board meetings for Fishing's Future or some organization like that. And so, Tom, now you finally get to see me in my ordinary attire looking, uh, looking just right for this show. Oh, baby, you're looking good. And you even shaved your head for us. I love it. Of course I did. Of course, for you guys, anything. BTC, we got one more special guest. That's right. Another fisheries biologist and the leader of Florida's Freshwater Fisheries Research Center helped develop the Florida Black Bass Management Plan and Trophy Catch Program. Is also allegedly, I got to say, allegedly caught, because I got to see proof, all 98 of them, has allegedly caught 98 bass over 10 pounds. Call bullshit on that. We got Jason Dotson. <laughs> Jason. Good evening. Jason over my Jason. left shoulder, that's a 14 and a quarter. That's my, my biggest. That's Very one good. of them. And caught, you know, not only by Jason, but in Porter Hall's boat. And Porter's name may come up later. I know Monty knows Porter. Mm -hmm. uh, Porter's part of of sow belly why am i holding up lord of the flies but i mean to be holding up sow belly i'm gonna get this right uh jason welcome thanks for joining us thanks for having me guys let me start with you money um before you do that ken i just yeah. wanted to since since jason's bragging i just want to show jason what a what a south jersey uh lunker largemouth looks like <laughs> very nice uh, uh, thank you it's been eaten away by chemicals and other pollutants. That's a Meadowlands bass. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Monty, you struck gold with sow belly. I think your timing was spectacular in that book. You know, you came out when the, the record chase was still hot and heavy. You came out before Dottie was caught at 25-1. Things were going great for that world record chase, but it, it seemed to die out 
relatively soon thereafter? Or am I making too much of that? No, I, th I, th I think you're exactly right. And I think you're, I mean, you know, I didn't necessarily time it on purpose. There was a lot of luck involved there. But, you know, you mentioned that a lot in your wonderful opening monologue. But, you know, you had, you know, right before I started, Bob Krupe caught his big bass in Casitas. Um, the reason that I actually got to do South Belly was I was at Forbes at the time. And uh, Forbes likes numbers. You know, they, they wouldn't let me go just do a story on, on guys trying to break a world record. But the Big Bass Record Club was around at the time. They were promising, if I remember, $8 million. $8 million. Uh, bucks. So, you know, you had that. <clears throat> of course, they turned out to be a total house of cards. Um, you had Krupe, you had, you had that. You had the Florida Strain Bass in California. Um, you know, just big fish coming. Porter Hall all of a sudden tried to grow his own bass. You had the Great Texas Program, of course, which I went down and, and looked at. Uh, you know, you even had Cuba and some other countries sort of all coming together at the same point. Um, and so it was kind of this apex moment. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I, I don't really know. Uh, I, I have some theories. I'm happy to expound on some theories about why it's died out. I can go into that now if you'd like. That'd be great, man. Go okay. with it. So, I mean, to me, I'm not a biologist. And I'm really interested to hear what these guys have to say. But, you know, I, I have a, a family pond in Alabama. And it's gone through all sorts of cycles. It started off when we, you know, my grandfather stocked it. They used to catch these huge double digit bass. Um, and then it went through a long period, maybe, you know, seven to 10 years, a very small bass. It was overpopulated. <clears throat> and then just recently, after a little bit of culling, actually, and some other things, it's actually kind of now returning finally to that, to that, you know, space where it has pretty big bass in it. And, you know, to me, maybe we're just caught in a cycle. Maybe they're just, people aren't catching you know, the, the frenzy dies down when they're not 20 plus pound bass being caught, right? I mean, when they're so true. 18, 19, you know, it just doesn't quite grab the headlines very much. So maybe we're in a period, especially in California, you know, maybe it reached its apex moment and it's kind of settled down into, you know, sort of more, more normalcy. I don't know what you would call it. Um, or maybe they have too many bass. I'm not really sure what happened. I think a big part of it, and if you don't mind, I'm going to cut in here. I want to bring Tom in on some here, but I think a big part of it was most of the trout stocking programs in California have, have died off, especially yeah. in public waters. Now, that's not to say that some private lake owners are not stocking trout or vitamin T, as they're yeah. often called out there. But, um, but you know, mine brings up a great point, Tom, that, that leads me right to you and Sherlunker. You may not think, you may think of me as just the best dressed guy in bass fishing, but I've been a real follower of Sherlunker through the years. And one of the things I noticed until fairly recently is that, that these windows would open on a particular body of water. And then they would close three or four years later. So you'd have a window open and you'd see some, some Sherlunker fish, 13 pounds and up. Mm -hmm. But in two or three years, gone. Right. No, and not just no more for a while. I mean, no more. And I'm guessing that's when those, those original Floridas were stocked. And then 12, 13, 14 years later, you or maybe maybe less, maybe 9, 10, 11 years later, uh, you see the, the Sherlunker fish pop up. But then once the, the genetics are diluted, you don't have them anymore. Is that a fair statement? Uh, there's a lot to it, you know. I mean, so this bigger question, right, about what happened to the world record bass chase, it's, it's a fishery science question, one. It's also a, a sociological question as well. And I would, I would even take a back, uh, a step back up there and jump into Monty's world a little bit more about people, right? And understanding people and say that, you know, part of it is keeping their attention spans, 
you know, we have major events happen in this world and we're all gung ho about something. And a couple years later, we're fizzled out and we want to pull out of this. We want to pull out of that. So uh, there's a, simply a cycle of, of trying to keep people's attention and focused on something. And I'll tell you about it. one thing. Um, of course, there's a lot of lessons that we've, we've learned through the Share Local program and, and, and things. But but one thing is uh, I would point is that when when people start to, to catch big bass, and get that confidence that they can catch big bass. More people fish for big bass. Now you can catch big bass just happenstance. We had an angler this year out there. He was crappie fishing, you know, and he and he caught a lunker, right? And uh, you know that happens. Our our state record, eighteen eighteen, was caught crappie fishing, you know. So uh, that'll happen. But when more people are gearing up for and targeting big bass. They catch more big bass and they're set up ready to land big bass. So I think part of it is having that confidence because you get bored not catching anything, right? If all you're going to do is fish for huge bass and, and you come home and you're stunked again because you're trying to, you know, shoot a 200-inch whitetail, eventually you're going to quit worrying about trying to shoot a 200-inch whitetail. You're going to, you know. So I think there's a there's a sociological uh, a part of this as well that, that, that goes into it. But certainly from a fishery science standpoint, you know, we have 1,100 reservoirs in Texas that we're trying to manage for great fishing. And and there's booms and busts. And I'm sure Jason would attest that in fisheries management, there are things that we can control and there are things we sure as heck can't control. And so we try to put our best foot forward on the things that we can control. And then hopefully things line up on the things that we cannot control and go in our favor too. And, and we've, we've seen that, you know, OHIV is a great example of that. We did the things right that we were supposed to do and and then the the rains came and we got the water level rises that we needed and the prey basin that we needed and and you see those cycles you know so well jason we threw it to you for a second and actually i'm gonna let btc take over because i understand i've got some audio issues i'm gonna try to clear up but but jason um i gotta say man you're right here in florida where i am so i'm rooting for you much harder than i'm rooting for tom <laughs> um, but but, you know, Florida has produced all of these giant fish. I don't think there's much argument that every fish over 18 ever caught in this country had Florida genetics in it. And yet Florida, unfortunately, has been mostly on the sideline for this world record chase. Um, is that, and I know things are changing, and I want to get a little later in the show to what you're doing now to enhance the Florida trophy bass stuff. But uh, has that long been a, a challenge or an issue or a source point? a sore point in Florida that you're not at the forefront of that chase? Well, uh, you know, this is such an interesting topic and I, I enjoyed your intro so much and hearing from, from Marty and Tom and there's, there's so much to, to touch on here, but for me, my, my first reaction as an answer to this question is that they don't exist right now in the United States. Did I lose you? No, we're here. Keep going. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, they're just not out there. You know, the fever pitch surrounding uh, the quest for the world record bass out in California, the 70s to the early 2000s, when most of the largest bass ever caught, there were so many of them out there that created that craze. You know, consider this. It's been 100 years since a 20-pound bass has been caught in Florida. It's been 20 years since a 20 pound bass was caught in, in California. And Texas and Mississippi have produced 18 pound bass, both coincidentally caught in 1992. 
So it's been many years uh, in the United States since these giant bass have been caught. And the, the most interesting question to me is why and, and what happened to them and what can we do from a management standpoint to try and create these 20 plus pound bass again. In, in Florida, you know, we have been on the sidelines. Florida's unique because we got 8,000 lakes, 10,000 miles of rivers, streams and canals. And you can get the trophy bass in any one of those water bodies. We produce a tremendous amount of eight to 10 pound bass and a fair amount of 13 to 15 pound bass. But 15 plus pound bass are just incredibly rare. And there's a lot of things going against Florida. Um, you know, we've had a tremendous amount of population growth in our state. Uh, we've had some habitat challenges, water quality challenges. Um, We've water level stabilization in Florida, uh, primarily for flood control, has been a huge issue. And, and back in the late 1800s to early 1920s, 1930s, when a lot of the big fish were caught in Florida, we had natural hydro hydrological cycle. We had these huge droughts and then huge floods that would create like a new reservoir effect and these trophy bass windows that you alluded to, Ken. And we don't get that any longer. And the places that are that are producing the biggest fish now are places like Orange Lake, where we do still get that natural hydrological cycle, or Feltner Reservoir, which is a, a new reservoir, and we have that pulse of big fish coming through. But over time, it, it sort of stabilizes, and you and you lose those really really top end fish. Hey, Jason, you know you could always just say Lake X and Lake A, Lake Lake Y, and. <laughs> and then say Orange Lake after the show to me. <laughs> well, one of the things that we want to do is is to promote our fisheries. You know, it, the Florida bass has been responsible for the craze for this quest for the world record. And prior to 1970, we had the monopoly because we had the genetics. And between 1911 and 1969, only four times was the largest bass caught in that field and stream contest outside of Florida. And once those fish went out to California and then Texas and Mississippi, Tennessee, Virginia, uh, Missouri, now it's all across the Southeast. Everybody's got them and, and even internationally. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's been good for recognition of Florida bass, but it's hurt Florida a little bit by sharing our unique product with the world. The rare time when when uh, Florida is all less about uh, people coming into it and going out of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. Ken, uh, you're muted. If you're trying to say something, I will talk over you. Nah, talk over them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say I think it's interesting to talk about. You know, some of the fisheries decline, and those fish have to be out there. I think absolutely that do have to be out there to uh, to catch those. And, and we've actually had an Operation World Record here in, in Texas, and we put a lot of effort into Operation World Record oh. um, as part of Texas Parks and Wildlife. Now, that was when we converted, you know, the Sherlocker program started in 1986, and we would breed those Sherlocker females with, with just pure Florida, you know, uh, males. Well, 2001, we actually started doing that with, and we have ever since, with with Sherlunker male offspring. We would hold some of our Sherlunker offspring back and grow up males as broodstock. So we would be doubling down 
on those Sri Lanka bass. And so those Florida genetics are, are a big deal. You know, they came in here in 1972 and Bob Kemp brought those in here as our division director at that time. And so those Florida genetics are, are absolutely very important. Uh, I mean, that's why we saw our, our state record was 13 and a half pounds. And 37 years later, it got broke, uh, you know, about uh, after after Florida Genetics came in here. And then we saw the state record broke six times in 12 years. And so uh, I think those Florida Genetics are important. But I think it's also important that those genetics are placed in a condition, right, that they're going to do the best. And, and in Texas, um, one of the things that the Sherlock program does for us is these are bass that have proven to grow to this size in Texas. And, and I, I think that's an important component of it, right? So we're, we're selecting for the ones that have done the best here, you know? Tom, I hope I, hope I can be heard. I don't, I don't know if people yeah, can hear me okay, ahead. but yeah. I'm not sure if it's good I can be heard. That might be a bad thing. It might kill our It's rating. a good thing, Ken. But Tom, you know, your point about the Florida genetics coming in in the seven, early 70s, uh, Medina, I believe, had produced the state record before that from like 1943. Right. Subsequent studies of those fish, which that, that lake was wiped clean by Rotenone or something in like the 40s or 50s, but subsequent studies of those fish proved that those fish somehow had Florida genetics. There must have been some bucket biology going on in the, in the 30s. Yeah. So astounding, but, but Florida genetics have impacted Texas fishing and made Texas fishing better. Uh, Jason, for far too long, we must block Texas from getting well, any more of our know, precious we got, fish. We got a lot of things that, that really thrive when they get to this wonderful state and the environments that we provide all across the board. You know, it's, we got all kinds of folks coming to Texas to do that. <laughs> but but I, I'll, I'll say this about, you know, Operation World Record. Um, the thing about a quest for a world record is a quest to make a unicorn, right? You're talking about a quest to make a unicorn, um, an absolute <laughs> single fish. And that one person gets to catch that fish. And, and really, uh, we learned a lot of great stuff from Operation World Record. And, and we've applied that and changed our program. And things are continuing to evolve as they should. I mean, that's the, that's the process and the seek for new knowledge, right? And to build upon that knowledge. But our real philosophy's changed a little bit, too, on that. It's, it's really less about trying to make one world record size fish that one person gets to enjoy and it's about making big bigger better bass fishing for all and i think we've seen a lot of that in texas i mean we talk about some of these bigger bass in the last two seasons we've seen six fish join our top 50 list six six fish i mean two 17 pounders 1703 1706 just a few weeks ago we saw 1665 caught you know and, and turned in and, and certified to the program so we've seen you know six top 50s and, and to put that in perspective you go back to, you know, 1982 when you saw, uh, or 81 when you saw John Alexander Jr. break the state record back to back, you know, a month apart, basically, broke his own state record. That's 15 and a half pound bass. That's not even a top 50 anymore. And so looking at the last 40 years of big bass management and evolution, of course, includes the catch and release ethic, and it includes uh, regulations. I mean, our first bass regulation in the state was, 10 fish a day, 10 inch minimum link limit, you know, like just to get a reg on the book so we can continue to do that. So you see, <laughs> you see regulations, um, you see uh, new reservoirs opening and of course reservoir aging. I'm sure Jason want to talk about that too. You know, that's a big deal. You got to have the right habitats. You see all these things going, you talk about fizzing folks still to this day fizz through the mouth. Right. And so, I mean, that that's hurting fisheries. So you're starting to see these, 
catch and release ethic. I mean, one of the first one of the first things we were trying to do with Cheryl Lunker was to increase the catch and release ethic out in the country. And and so you see catch and release, you see bigger, uh, better regulations, you see better stocking. You've got some new reservoirs coming online. So all those have, have really continued to grow to where we're seeing some of these great bass fisheries. I mean, we've had 75 different lakes in this state produce 13 pounders. And by the way, we only have one natural lake, uh, not to rag on, on, on Florida, but they do have a lot of really wonderful natural fisheries to manage. And it's different in this state. And it's not, it's not a one's better than the other. I'm not doing that at all, but it, it's just different. We, you know, we have 1,100 man-made impoundments. That's what we manage. And we have to, you know, manage everything from the ground up. And it's just a different game. You know, if it's there, it's because Parks and Wildlife made it. You know, well, well, California certainly taught us the advantage of man-made reservoirs and two-story fisheries and things like that. And uh, Tom, I know a lot of those fish that have come in the last two years have come out of, as a result of forward-facing sonar and some guys who are really, really good with it. And Monty, I want to ask you a question um, about that because we've seen forward-facing sonar produce fish that people didn't even know were there just a few years ago. And I, I've, I've thrown out the idea that if we'd had forward-facing sonar in the 80s and 90s, that California would have exceeded 22 pounds, who knows how many times, 10, 20, 30 times possibly in that in that time period. Is that a fair statement? I mean, yes, but I also, you have to remember that a lot of these guys, Jed Dickerson in particular and Mike Long before he was, uh, uh, or his name was besmirched, um, were sight fishing. Yes, true. Body was, body was sight fished uh, a number of times, and other fish were, you know, they were, they were sight fishing these fish on the bed. So, uh, you know, sonar didn't really, really wouldn't help that much. But um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it definitely would have helped. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about all this. Uh, this technology sometimes kind of bums me out a little bit with the drones and the, you know, finding tarpon and finding redfish and sonar. I mean, it takes a little bit of the romance out of the whole thing for me, but. Um, but without a doubt, it would have helped. I'm with you on taking the romance out of it. Yeah, Monty, it's it's like it's it's like you said, taking the romance. It's like it's like online dating and dating apps. I mean, it also just takes you know. It's like I fish with guides down in Florida who are 75 years old, and they they learned it right. They went out there and they pulled the water. They learned all the water. And here come these guys with these drones flying over, and they see the tarpon coming. You know, it's like it just seems like it's cheating. It, it's yeah, really what, what, what happened to go, go into the club and putting your time in, you know what I mean? Right, and also, you know, we do this to get away from video games and we're making it more into a video game. But anyway, that's a different rant for a different topic. We're going to do fair chase at one point, uh, whether there should be fair chase records or more extensive fair chase records for, for world record. Jason, I want to ask you, you're, you're probably the youngest guy on the panel, and, uh, but I bet you remember this very well because you've been chasing big fish for a long time. When Dottie was caught in 2006 at 25 pounds, one ounce, did that have a chilling effect on this chase? Did people think, oh my God, there's that fish out there. Why am I even trying? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that that was a huge deal. I remember like going with my buddies and watching the Discovery Channel um, did, a, did a documentary on it. I mean, that was a huge deal. I mean, I can't imagine Discovery Channel today making a documentary on bass fishing. But, but that was a, a huge deal. And this was, you know, George Perry's fish is mythical. I mean, that, that record has stood for it's so It's a fraud. Certainly, <laughs> certainly <laughs> my whole lifetime. And, you know, I've watched all these California fish through the years and, and followed those fisheries. And when you see one 
that not only breaks but shatters the current record it's like oh my goodness um it, it's a it's a shame that the fish was snagged yeah well it, it, what's it, amazing it on is some level it, i'm saying i'm sorry what's amazing is george perry guessed the right weight for his record that when the real record was caught it was a tie and you got to give him a hand for for that foresight you know what i mean because he could have picked any number but he chose 22-4. BTC is getting at my my personal very strong belief that Perry was a fraud. Let's let's ask our panelists here. Jason, George Perry, true or false? You know, it, it's really hard for me to to speak to something that was almost a hundred years ago and before my time, and we'll never really know the truth. But my gut says that it's probably not possible for an oxbow in South Georgia to produce a fish of that size. All right. Now, now, again, I'm not arguing that 22.4 is not the number to beat. I think that's a mythical number to your point earlier, Jason. That's a mythical number. Unless you beat 22.4, nobody's going to take you seriously. Tom, George Perry, real well, or fake? I'll say that I think those old cotton scales, those old ag scales uh, weren't as accurate as we would have liked. And we see that a lot in some of our old, old records, right? And well, so I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. Depending on which version of the Perry myth you want to go with, it was either postal scales or scales in a general store. Right. And, and so, you know, we've seen a lot of old records that, you know, we go looking at some more empirical data with some other measurements that they have and we're like you know it just doesn't add up and so i wouldn't be surprised but i don't i wouldn't be able to say that about you know about george perry's fish and i'll add this to it if you look at our current state record and you just look at a picture of it people go man there's no way it's 18 pounds you know that's a great big bass but that's not 18 pounds and they say that about every catch don't they of course they do <laughs> i'll big... tell you what when you look especially on these big fish if you just look at one picture from one angle but on that, on Barry St. Clair's bass, when he pulls that up out of there in a video, when you watch the video and you see how wide that bass is. But a lot of people I think don't realize is the importance of width on a lot of these big bass. Like they, they, they are freaking wide. And I mean, you're, I mean, you're just like, boom, you know, because we've seen over it's like, man, this is 27 and a half, 28 inch bass and it's, you know, 14 pounds or something. How is that when you got a 26 incher that's, you know, like bigger than that? And so I think width is 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 a lot of times uh, overlooked, I, I'll say. And and on Perry's bash, you know, how many how many real angles did you get at it? You know, so it's real hard to just look at a picture and go, no, that's not right. And, we, and we've seen, I mean, as more uh, big bass, you know, trophy bass as, as anybody. And that, that'd be kind of the way I'd look at it. The length and girth on Perry's fish are, sound pretty legit, but let me go. Monty, you have walked the mean streets of Helena, Georgia. Uh, George Perry, real or imagined? Was, was the parting of the Red Sea real or imagined? Was the Tower don't, of Babel Don't real? turn it back on us, Monty. No. <laughs> <laughs> he is romantic. You may listen to him, man. It is. It is. There's a, there's a whole strain of theology. I actually was an idiot. I studied theology in college, but there's a whole strain called... Uh, <laughs> about about stories that are that are not necessarily i mean whether they're true or not kind of doesn't matter they, they call them profoundly true right and so this mm. to me perry's story is 
is what matters about it is is the is it is the story itself, right? And that it is a mark, and that it is this mythical. That it has a little bit of this, you know, this sort of new world brawn to it, you know, as a as this nation is sort of becoming this great, you know, this great beacon of freedom and and, and industry. You know, this is this is this farm boy goes out and he, and he does this, you know, basically this miracle thing. And you know that actually gets to a little bit of the the what I was going to thought about when you asked this question about why has the sort of heat of the world record chase kind of gone out. Part of it might be that Corita caught a bass and and tied the record. In fact, Corita's bass was actually bigger than George Perry's bass. And I wonder if the myth of this bass, I mean, I know for the guys that I wrote about, like the myth carried a lot of weight, right? I mean, that was whether they believed it or not, it it was the mark, right? So it, it, it carried this mythical status right i mean that's that they they wanted to be george perry they had to get 22-4 and here, here's this guy out you know not even in the united states who catches this bass that's actually bigger and just because of igfa rules it's still a tie but it's actually bigger and i wonder if that's like the balloon and the needle and you know the myth is gone now right sort of yeah it's definitely been tamped down i'll put it that way but but dotty at 25-1 didn't didn't kill well, the myth well i mean ap- Absolutely. I mean, that that had a role in it, too. But just in terms of official, you know, official things, you know, Dottie being snagged. I don't know. It just like that kind of it has a weird vibe to it to begin with. Right. It does. I can't decide. Go ahead, BTC. Well, so so I just want to say, um, is is there any way to know the uh, the genetics of of George Perry's bass? I guess not, right? It's way too far back. I ate it too. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, somebody mentioned a, a, a fish being was a Medina, where they had a it was a Florida strain bass. Yeah, very easily. I mean, you know, these, these that's not too far from Georgia, from Florida, right? And you could travel on a on a bird's leg for all we know. The eggs could. I mean, who knows, right? It's actually right. part of the natural range. Am I correct, Jason? Yes. So, you know, it's been much debated over the years, the species, subspecies and, and range of Florida bass versus northern bass and, and integrates. We've known for years that we had 100 percent pure Florida bass population that's in the historical integrate zone. But a publication came out last year redescribing some black bass and uh, the, the American Fishery Society has accepted that publication and officially accepted uh, changes, which are um, Florida bass are now Micropterus salmoides, which historically had been northern largemouth bass, and northern largemouth bass are uh, Micropterus nigricans, and the range distributions have been updated. So, yeah, South Georgia would be within the range of Florida bass. So I want to get back to talking about making these bass a little bit too, because I mean, Jason, I think did a great job setting up about are they out there and we have to like talk about, can we make them? Right. So if we're able to make them, I mean, people will fish for them, right. But you want to catch a 25 pound bass can, I mean, we can make them, you want to do it. Right. So I'm ready. So what's setting us up <laughs> on that? And, and, and you kind of touched a little bit about forward facing sonar and, and I think people, they forget the time element. These fish take a long time. So where are we getting into this squeeze on time, right? We know from, from our research that it's 10 to 11 years to make a 13-pound bass in this state. It's 10 to 11 years. 
Now, how old are these fish actually going to be around? Like, how long are they going to be around? So maybe we're talking 16, 17, 18. Man, that's an old bass right there. So, and on top of that, you got to think about your grandma. When she got that little hump on her back, that wasn't when she was her biggest, right? And so as these bass get old and, and they start to go downhill. I mean, think about this. So so we, we've actually seen a lunker come in. Uh, it was a recapture that was smaller than the first time we got her, right? And so, oh yeah, so, or lighter, uh, she's lighter than, than when we when we first had her come into the program because they age and they go downhill, you know. So where is that? Where is that peak? And where are these things all coming together, right? So when you, you put forward-facing sonar in there, and and my, my only point about that is that every time you catch that fish and handle that fish and whatnot, there's a chance that fish is going to die, right? Sure. Maybe you break a gill raker, maybe, you know, um, or with forward-facing sonar, so finding some of these fish uh, offshore in deep waters and yanking them up in cold temperatures, we're seeing more extreme barrel trauma happen, right? Mm -hmm. And you got people out there telling them to fizz them through the mouth, right? And now all of a sudden, great, I let that fish go and it swam off, right? And it went laid on the bottom and died. Uh, you know, that happens. It doesn't happen all the time. But you also have folks that, man, this is a hot lake and I just have to fish it and I don't care that it's 110 degrees out. I'm doing it and I'm bringing my fish across the way, way scale, right? So what does that do to those fish? Those fish that took over a decade to make and now, you know, so they're not, are they, are they actually in the population long enough to reach their maximum potential? And so these are all those things, these these factors that just come into play. And, and I only bring that up, and I'm not talking bad about forward-facing sonar or fishing deep or anything like that. My only point is, is that that's part of the deal. People are going to fish how they're going to fish. We have regulations, you know, that try to combat everything we can to, to conserve and make the best bass fishing possible, right? But that's part of it. And when that's part of it, that stifles what's, you know, what that potential is to make that next world record bass. So somebody has a chance to catch it, you know, you know, if I can jump in here for a second, I, I want to go to you, Jason, uh, Tom mentioned, what does it take to grow one of these fish and the effort to grow? You've actually spent a lot of time, including time in a boat with a man who tried to do just that Porter hall. Can you tell us about Porter's efforts and, and your experience fishing with that guy? Cause he's a, well, I know Monty knows him because he's included in sow belly. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to, to Tom's um, uh, statements there a little bit later, but yeah, I'll, I'll jump into Porter. Uh, Porter's been a, a mentor and a really great friend of mine. I met him when I was in graduate school here at the University of Florida. Uh, he's, he's actually got a degree in fisheries. He was working as a fisheries biologist at University of Florida. When I came here as a graduate student, we worked together a lot in the field, shared a passion for trophy bass fishing. And, and he taught me a lot that the first day I ever spent on his boat was in Mississippi fishing a renovated lake, which, which is a strategy I think we need to spend some time on um, during this, this podcast um, and caught a 14, four with him. And I, I stayed at, at his place up there. He had, uh, I think he had about 70, 70 to hundred acres, had two ponds on it, had a, uh, a lower pond, which was 37 acres, I think. Um, that was a newly constructed pond below an original seven acre or so pond that he had up top. And he relocated some big fish and grew them bigger in that top pond. I think 
over 16 pounds, but he had a lot of a uh, lot of issues with getting the new reservoir created down below the bigger one, getting it to hold water, and just he never he never really got the time window that he needed to take a real shot at the at the big lake, and um, it's really difficult. There's been a lot of really smart people take shots at growing a world record bass, whether that's yeah. Glenn Lau trying to selectively breed and grow it in captivity here in Florida or Porter and others who have built private lakes. Uh, you know, Ray Scott had famous private lakes. I don't know that he tried to build a grow world record there, but certainly uh, a lot of people have. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, one of the richest men in the world, you know, has a, has a, big place in, in South Georgia. And he's doing actually some cutting edge science um, and genetics stuff, trying to grow the world record um, or or possibly grow the world record. So there, there's a lot of people out there that have tried, yet we have not seen it happen other than, um, you know, in Japan where you have an invasive species um, in an incredibly deep lake, that's got hydrilla as a native plant. It has trout and multiple species of carp and a mandatory harvest of all bass caught. So likely have a low density situation um, with good habitat and ample forage. Those are all factors that we really want to influence. Growth recruitment and mortality, those are our critical rate functions uh, for population dynamics. And so the management actions that we take, we're wanting to manipulate growth, recruitment, and mortality. You know, you it, it, you mentioned Glenn Lau, and I did a book with Glenn Lau some years ago. He passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, Glenn did try to, to grow the world record in a, in a lake system, uh, and he had poaching problems from the get-go that were insurmountable. He did manage to grow one fish, he told me, to about 18 and a half. And then he had somebody come in and try to catch it with a snag hook and killed that fish. But um, Porter Hall, other people have tried, as you say, and you mentioned Japan and you're talking about Lake Biwa, which is about the size of Toledo Bend. It's about 180,000 acres, two-story fishery with trout and so forth like that. Um, and, and Karita, Karita said something to me when I had a chance to talk with him through an interpreter, of course. Um, he said that he caught the smallest fish in that school. Oh, he said there were six or eight other fish in that group that were smaller. And, and Monty, we've talked a, a little bit about Karita here. Um, did the record simply going to another country, did that have a chilling effect on, on what we're doing? Absolutely. I mean, this is America's fish, right? Amen. It's very much America's fish. And I think that's, a you know, these fish do. There, there's all so types of examples of, of uh, species thriving in different places, right? I mean, you think about South America, Patagonia and Chile and Argentina, you know, I mean, those trout down there have taken <clears throat> to that area better almost in some ways than taken Montana. So this happens quite a bit, but absolutely, you know, having this record <clears throat> be caught somewhere, not, not, you know, somewhere very far away. So this isn't Cuba, this isn't Mexico, this is Japan, it's the other side of the world. Um, uh, I think that absolutely had a, had a chilling effect on um, on the world record chase. And, and to kind of piggyback on something that Tom said earlier about the sociological part of this whole thing, I do wonder if it's a generational thing as well. I mean, I think, I think the biggest problem is that there just, there just aren't as many 20 plus bass around as there used to be. Like they are kind of, they're unicorns, but I do wonder if it's a generational thing too. If there's, I mean, when I did that tarpon book 
you know, I found that the younger generation didn't care about records. Uh, they cared more about, you know, Instagram and hanging out and being outside and all that kind of stuff too. So there was that, but also the dedication it takes to, to be a, a, a real world record chaser, no matter if you're chasing Tarpon or Bass or whatever, <coughs> is insane, right? It's an insane amount of time. It's an insane amount of focus. Um, and I just don't know, I mean, are, are people willing to sort of pass everything aside? Are you willing to kind of, you know, uh, break up your marriage? Are you willing to, to not do very well in your job or not even have a job and do this as your sort of sole focus? And, you know, the guys that I profiled in, in South Belly, pretty much to a man, with the, with the exception maybe of Sammy Yera in Cuba, you know, this was their main thing they did. I mean, they, they this was their, the thing that animated them, the thing that got them out of bed. They were truly, truly obsessed people with this one thing, right? They didn't really care about the jobs all that much. They had trouble with their relationships. They had trouble with their children because they were just focused on trying to break this world record. I just don't, you know, I don't know. It, it, maybe there are people out there right now. I, I don't know if in the bass world, that's for sure. Monty, at the risk of sounding like some sort of a, a backwoods or or backroom uh, psychoanalyst here, I think it's fair to say that all of your fabulous books have one thing in common that I love about them. They're all about obsession. Absolutely. You show me somebody who's passionate or obsession or obsessed with something, and, and that's somebody who's going to, I'm going to find fascinating. Um, are, Tom, are you seeing the kind of obsession for big fish that Monty wrote about in Sow Belly? Or, or is that a previous generation thing? Well, I think there's a handful of folks that certainly are. And uh, I think there's a lot of folks that are watching them pretty closely online, you know, uh, as well. So we, we see that in some folks. I mean, look at the look at the Josh Joneses and the Ben Millikens of the world and the people that have, have logged on and, and followed them around and what that's done for, for their lives and their careers on these big bats that, you know, that our biologists have made. We got a question here. I'm sorry to interrupt uh, from, uh, I think, a mutual friend of most of ours, Stephen Barden, uh, who not only runs his own management program, uh, but also is the biologist for Major League Fishing. And uh, Jason, let's start with you. Um, he, he, wants, he wants me to ask if tournament popularity and weigh-ins are damaging the chance at a world record. Your <laughs> thoughts on that? And uh, I shouldn't, I, I hate to put our biologists on the, on the hot spot here, That's because I here. know <laughs> Monty's supposed to answer the hot spot question. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I would say that um, my initial reaction is potentially, but maybe not for the reasons that you think. Okay. Um, so tournament fishing and and Ray Scott and all he did for conservation has been fantastic. However, you know, I, I think about this question, has the catch and release ethic harmed our ability to grow the top, you know, the highest end fish in a population? Because, you know, there's this thing called density dependent growth that if, if your populations are larger, there's less forage, your growth rates are, are not quite as good. And so, you know, in, in Florida in the 1960s and 50s, and there was all this harvest going on, that was a period in time when we were producing a tremendous amount of trophy sized fish. Now, selectively harvesting those large fish is not good, but it can be very good to selectively harvest smaller fish. You know, we, we implemented in 2016 a, a statewide harvest regulation that was a maximum. And this was pretty new in fisheries management at this scale. 
And we, we said, you know, you can keep any size fish under 16 inches, but over 16 inches, you can only keep one fish. And we want to target the harvest towards those males and the smaller fish and protect the females that can grow to, to big sizes. So, you know, I, I know it's been written about a lot and there's been efforts through, um, you know, outdoor magazines and stuff to try and educate anglers on the importance of harvest as a, as a management technique. But, um, you know, from a from a direct uh, discard mortality standpoint, uh, I'm guessing that's where most people would go. Um, you know, it, possibly situationally, we had we had a situation on Orange Lake, which is which is a, a place right now that's in one of those trophy bass windows. We had a 1510 there last year. Wow. The angler harvested it and had it taxidermied. We got the otolus. It was only 10 years old, so it was a fast growing. Oh. Fast growing fish. It was, you know, from the right place, and we had a we had a lot of tournaments there with, you know, over forty pound limits. A lot of them were being caught in the summer, so we actually started limiting tournaments there in the summertime to try and protect those big fish during that big fish window. Uh, so that's a that's a situation where I think regulating tournaments could help with growing, you know, a potential world record size fish. But I would say. From a from a big standpoint, discard mortality is is probably not one of the main contributing factors to not seeing these twenty pound fish in Florida. And folks, that's why Jason Dotson is on the show because not only can he be diplomatic, uh, but he can actually answer the damn question too. So thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. Now, Tom, I want to shift to you because of something Jason said there. He talked about regulations, and we've all fished lakes where there are slot limits and things like that, or or, or greater length limits and stuff. Is there is there a place for that kind of stuff in management hey, for the super biggest fish? There absolutely are. And if you look at uh, the history of the Tour of Texas Bass Classic, which became Tour of Texas Bass Fest, that it grew up into major league fishing. That's where we actually showed you could have a, a trophy regulation on a major fishery like Lake Fork and still have major tournaments there. I mean, that's what we did, and that's what grew into major league fishing through you know the toyota texas bass fest toyota texas bass classic and so um you, you certainly can do that i mean jason's absolutely right i mean slot limits catch and release is the smoky the bear of slot limits right smoky the bear means we can't have regular fire management out west so we have wildfires right well catch and release means it's awful hard to make a slot slot limit work and get people to catch and eat small bass right um, what I was getting to on that was the the fact that some of these bigger fish like that 15 that he's talking about, when we're able to target those and we can't help ourselves, but to put them in a live well all day and then take them across the scale in August and when the water is 90 some degrees and then go and release them because they swam off, we say they lived and they didn't. Right. You know, and, and I think when that fish is in that is no longer in that population. Look, that fish doesn't care if you put a fillet knife in it or you let it go. If it died, it died. Right. You know, so that that's my only point that I was trying to get to on that is is just simply, yep, great, I let it go. Let's just be real about it. If you don't do things right and and you do that in those situations and you let it go, it's dead. And and from a population standpoint and from an individual standpoint, it doesn't really matter if you filleted it or if you let it go and it swam off to die uh, three days later with post-release mortality, which we've done a tremendous amount of work on post-release mortality uh, in Amistad and Falcon and otherwise. So um, I think that 
And I'm certainly not calling for a ban on these things, but I think we could change how we do things, guys. And I think we can be uh, quit kidding ourselves about conservation and and say it swam off so it's alive and, uh, and actually change how we do things at certain times of the year and be more thoughtful about that, I think could go a long way. And that's probably a pretty unpopular thing to say, but I'll put it out there. I, I love it. I completely agree with you, Tom. And and you know, one of the one of the points that you made is is one of the my biggest pet peeves that I see on social media. These guys in Florida and they're putting bass, they're not in a tournament, they don't have a tournament exemption, and they're putting these large fish in their live wells all day as if they're fishing in a tournament, which is a violation of our harvest regulations. And you know, it, it's sort of become uh, sort of standard practice for a lot of bass guys to fish like they're in a tournament, even if they're not in an exempted tournament. And, you know, that's something that I really wish that I could influence to, to try and educate anglers to not do that sort of thing. Because discard mortality, just exactly like you said, just because you see a fish swim away doesn't mean it's going to survive. And We've done quite a bit of that discard mortality work, and in in the summertime, it can be shockingly high. I mean, we've had we've had tournaments with greater than fifty percent seven day delayed mortality in the summertime. Um, oh, geez, I, I think that's a great point. I think that's actually we need a little more education as an angling community because I feel like, you know, when when you when you when people go around and say it, and I used to do it too. I'm a catch and release angler. It was like this card that, that you were like, you're everything's good. When it's not true, you're impacting whenever you release any, whenever you catch, hook something and release it, you're impacting that fish, you're impacting the fishery itself. I mean, I remember catching a big tarpon one time and I said, you know, is that tarpon going to live? And he said, he'll, he'll live, but you ruined his day. I mean, you know, so there is like, there's, there's something to be said about anglers being a little more, more responsible, whether they're catch and release or not, especially if they're catch and release though about when and, and how they do this. I mean, having angling practices about how to release fish and, and having times when it's really hot. I mean, no fish thrives when it's that hot. Not, you know, it, so know what you're doing. You know, it's a moral question, this catch and release thing that we don't think about enough as anglers, I don't think. And by goodness, we made it for you to catch them. We want you to catch them and have a good time. I mean, that's, that's why we try to make these fish. We love what we do. We love our anglers and want them to have you know, a great time, but being a little more thoughtful about these things, when and how, and uh, and and what you do there, I think can go a long way to help and increase that potential, right? So, BTC, yeah. Um, so there's no denying trout played a, a a major part in what went on in California in the '80s and '90s. Is there any, you know, in order to for the fish to be 20 you know 18 to 20 and 20 plus um what kind of efforts are made or, or are there any um in in coming up with i obviously trout don't do too well in florida and texas but oh contraire hold on what what hold on ask ask the man uh, we stocked three hundred forty-five thousand rainbow trout this winter so they'll do that just until it gets too warm and they die and when they start to get sluggish and die, they start getting picked off by other things. But, well, yeah, we've purchased about 345000 this winter alone that we'll be stocking for winter fishing opportunities across Texas. And that's not Stay, the only what, guy I want you to ask that question to. Well, when did, when did you start Monty. that? <laughs> when did we start that? Yeah, just curious. Oh, we've been doing that for over a quarter century. Oh, geez. Well, fantastic. I mean, that, 
but that's not reservoirs for the most part. I mean, we're not putting them necessarily in there. This is this is some um, river fisheries. This is community fisheries, urban fisheries, right? You know, so this is we're not necessarily in the same spots. It's not it's not that, but you know, we've got a little Zebco pond here, right here at the Texas Freshwater Fishery Center. We do that too, and we just drain it as we're we've, we're shut down for a major renovation right now. And I'll tell you, uh, we had uh, we had double digits of. 10 and 12 pound bass come out of this little three quarter acre pond. And uh, I would say that those, those trout that we stock every winter probably, uh, uh, you know, help to support that situation a little bit too. Absolutely. Jason. Yeah. So I know Ken's anxious to hear about what's going on in, in Florida with, uh, with, with trout. Uh, Florida is the last state in the United States to ever stock a trout, uh, a rainbow trout in its waters. Um, but you know, 20 of the 25 largest bass ever caught came from trout-planted lakes. And so you have to consider it as a management wow. strategy. And uh, so for the last several years, we've been doing quite a bit of investigations and research into the risks and potential benefits of trout, doing risk assessments, looking at survival windows, movement, predation rates by bass. Um, and through all that research, uh, you know, we're, we're learning that the predation rates are very high. Uh, the risk is very minimal because we're not, we're not a very good climate match. So we're doing some experimental things. I'm not going to give uh, a lot of details on locations and numbers because this is all still in the research uh, arena, but we are at the point where we're experimenting in the wild um, with fairly substantial numbers of trout to actually look at growth in the wild. Simultaneously, we're doing some lab studies uh, in the hatcheries where we're feeding bass exclusive diets of trout, lake chub suckers, uh, bluegill, which we're calling the ration diet, and koi. And we're just one year into that, but we've seen some pretty interesting results. We put on three and a half pounds of weight um, in three months on a bass, on a diet of koi. Koi actually outperformed rainbow trout in year one. Relatively low number of replications. It's a three-year study. Uh, Mike Allen at University of Florida is involved assisting us with this study. So we still got a lot to learn going down this road, but it's a pretty exciting road to be on. Hey, Monty, uh, who knew you could throw a rainbow trout swim bait in Florida and expect them to see natural prey? <laughs> Time to buy time to buy stock in, in trout hatcheries, it seems like to me. That's my takeaway. It's what? interesting Jason mentioned the koi because that's that's our standard forage for our uh, our Lone Star bass production bass and our share local bass. That's our that's our standard forage is koi as we grow a heck of a lot of koi. That's ours too. Um, oh. and uh, isn't, that you know, the, isn't that the uh, uh, national fish of Japan? I don't I'm know. not sure about that one. But Let's we, just say we it is. We don't I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not worried about the national fish of Japan. I'm worried about making I, bigger, better bass in Texas. I just, I just figured that was. <laughs> yeah, I, I just figured that was the reaction to, you know, that 22.5 caught in Japan. But koi is We're, just a pretty name for a carp. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Monty, what could that do? You know, if if. Jason and the folks at uh, FWC are putting that kind of weight on largemouths in Florida with the help of trout. Is that something you think that could rekindle the fire in this world record chase? 
Absolutely. Especially if it's in Florida, which is sort of an iconic kind of bass fishing place anyway, and iconic fishing in general, right? I mean, uh, I think that would be incredible. Florida, Texas, California, to me, are the three sort of big dogs in the whole thing. And it would be cool to see Texas and Florida in particular, <clears throat> you know, kind of like not necessarily reclaim some spots, but, it, you know, be be bigger players in, in the in the top 25 list, uh, especially since, you know, these are native fish. This is Florida's fish. It's America's fish, but it's really, you know, these big ones are, are Florida's fish. That'd be really cool. I'm, I would love to see that. All right, Tom, I got to put you on the spot for just a second here. We're still friends. Back in about 92, Alan Forsage, who was running Cheryl and Kurt at the time, uh-huh. I believe, said that uh, Texas was going to produce a world record within five years. He said, I guarantee it. I realized that Cheryl Lunker, apart from being a fabulous program to raise big fish and all that, is also a marketing effort. Uh, what happened that there was not a Texas world record by the by the year 2000? Right. And Alan, uh, Alan is a predecessor, right? So uh, so I, I'll, I'll speak to, to Alan's words. And I think that's kind of what I was getting to earlier is that's a that's a unicorn deal. And I think uh, what we have done is is create uh, tremendous trophy bass fishing all across the state, uh, no but to be able to create that that world class, I think uh, I think Alan might have overstretched a little bit there, frankly, um, and and he's retired now, so he's probably not listening. So I can probably get away with that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, Are you suggesting there's someone out there not listening to Bass After Dark? Is that even possible? One. He may be the only one that. And, yeah. So, but you know, it's a it's a process too, and and to say. Probably where he really messed up was five years, you know, because I think um, there's a process. There's a lot of pieces to it. Uh, one of those pieces is genetics. That's why I alluded to earlier is we try to put our best foot forward on the things that, that we can do. And so we're actually um, for the last two years, um, 22 and 23, we've completely converted our Florida largemouth bass uh, production to what we call Lone Star largemouth bass. Which, which means that, that no longer are we stocking just pure Floridas. These are pure Florida Cheryl Lunker lineage. So we're now getting further in depth into the genetic piece of these are, are pure Florida Cheryl Lunkers. Not all Cheryl Lunkers are pure Florida, but the ones that are, we've held some of their offspring back and, and created whole brood stocks so that all the Floridas that we produce have a proven lineage of someone in their history their, their lineage growing over 13 pounds in Texas. And so that what that means is that we've gone from producing a couple of million Cherylunker offspring that have been stocked in the state to now annually, the last two years, we've stocked almost 12 million fingerlings that are these Lone Star Bass fingerlings. Now, this is a long process, right? And then we've got new reservoirs. Somebody mentioned in the comments about Bodark and how long till Bodark opens up. You know, Bodark, we've done a lot of great things at Bodark, uh, um, even beyond what we were able to do at Fork, because Fork wasn't, didn't have Lone Stars available. Bodark has got Lone Star Largemouth. It's a new reservoir, right? So you get new reservoir effect. We've been able to do extreme habitat work from the get-go. So if you want to talk about making bigger and better bass fisheries too, you better go start Friends of Reservoirs chapter because our reservoirs are aging and we need to and, and put habitat back in our lakes. We need to work together to increase good fish habitat in our lakes, right? So that's one thing that we can all do. So habitat and genetics, you know, and, and, and then another thing that we've done here is in Texas, we haven't, we've actually come out with a white paper where where we, we say, you know, Hydrilla, 
there's times hydrilla is not great and it can be detrimental but guess what there is beneficial use of hydrilla it may not be native but we need to manage it with a clear head the way that we manage other things and not just eradicate it and and i think that's another piece that is a change uh and another evolution of this piece that will help bass fishing going into the future too Monty, one of my favorite chapters in Sow Belly was what you did with Bob Krupe, who passed away very recently. Mm -hmm. um, in the 80s and 90s, he was really probably at the forefront of the chase. I think everybody, if you had, if you could put money on somebody to break the record, there would have been a lot of money on Bob Krupe, and he caught a fish that I think weighed 22.01. But by the time you were talking to him and researching your book, he seemed kind of burned out. What was, what was his cycle of the chase like? I mean, he, he was, I loved, he was the first character I, I interviewed. He was just unbelievable. He was this big bear of a man who was a motorcycle cop in California, like just this toughie. <laughs> Posh. Put away like hookers and Johns. And, you know, he was just like this. And he had, he had a great, like, motorcycle cop mustache and everything. He was, he was <laughs> straight out of central casting. But by the time we got to him, Casinas, there had been a, an earthquake in Northridge. And it had, the theory was anyway that it had, it had messed up Lake Casitas somehow a little bit, but more so. So he wasn't catching these giant fish like he was before. But more than that, it was just the the, the constant everyday pressure. You know, he caught a big fish, and everyone wanted to talk to him and interview him, and get all these competitors on the water. All of a sudden, this became this sort of. It became like a lot of obsessions. It was kind of taken too far and became kind of detrimental. I think obsessions kind of can be a really positive thing in people's lives. But if it's gone too far, or goes too far, then it become a, it become a real detriment. And I think he he got to that point. Um, you know, I remember he and I. I think we spent two or three days on the lake fishing his. Uh, he had you know live bait, and I I think the rod rattled once. Um, you know, so at that point it was just he just was it was fumes at that point for him. But I'll always just love him. He was actually the the genesis of the book was the Forbes story. I actually went out and hung out with. Bob Krupe and the fact that this motorcycle cop gave me the time of day was so cool. And I just, uh, I, I was sad to hear that he passed away. Yeah. I love that. Well, I love every, every page in your book. It's, it's fabulous. It's a, just a wonderful treatise on obsession and, and a sport we all love. And if, who was your favorite character that you got to talk to? And maybe I don't mean to be dismissive by calling them characters, but who was a, your favorite yeah. person? So, so that's a little bit hard because you, you sort of, you know, you, you kind of like, you you like all of your characters, even the ones that are bastards. I even love the bass holes. You know, I mean, they they were just because they were so interesting. Um, it's a little bit like asking like which of your kids is your favorite. But I have to say, the one that was the most kind of poignant to me, the one that kind of got to me the most was was Sammy Yera, who was this guy in. Uh, he actually was a he had a PhD basically, but he was in Cuba and he was he probably lived on like five dollars a week. Lived in this like literal shacks next to other families. He had a wife and a couple of kids as well. And, uh, you know, he just was obsessed with, with the large, he was obsessed with the record to the point where I brought him, I said, what can I bring you from the United States? And he wanted back issues of Field and Stream and Bass Magazine and, and every sort of fishing magazine, as many as I could put in my duffel bag. I basically brought another duffel bag just a magazine so he could read it. But <clears throat> he was this very skinny guy who had these huge shoulders. And one of the first things I asked, I was like, why? You know, it's an odd thing to ask another man, but like, why are your shoulders so big? And he, told, he was telling me that the, they, don't, they didn't have motors. He would fish in bass tournaments. They didn't have motors on the boat. So the, the pistol would go off and they'd be rowing, slap, 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 to get out to these things. So all these guys had these massive motors. <clears throat> but there was a certain poignancy to, to him because he loved the, 
he loved, you know, it's a little bit like the kid who's like not in the, he wasn't in the chase, but he loved it even more. He loved absence made the heart grow fonder or not being right in the middle of it. He just was, he was obsessed with the other people who were obsessed and it had this wonderful sort of poignancy to it. So I love Sammy, loved him. Oh, I, like I said, if anybody doesn't have sow belly, you're, you need to fix that. We're going to talk more about sow belly in a bit, but Jason, I want to, I want to go to one of my gripes about the state of Florida, which I, where I live, I love Florida. Uh, they'll take me out in a body bag if, if, if that, but one of the things that always frustrates me about Florida is our state record is just 17 and a quarter, basically 17.27 caught in the mid eighties, a lot of some controversy about it because the angler never revealed where he caught that fish. There have been so many bigger fish taken out of Florida through the years, but because of, of record uh, regulations about having it being seen by a biologist and so forth, that's the state record. Um, do you think that, that we have a real potential to knock on the door and, and beat that record in the next few years with some of the new programs? I, I absolutely think so. Um, you know, I mean, historically, Florida has produced those fish. There's been many fish caught that have, um, you know, verified as a strong word going back into history, but, you know, that you have a lot of confidence in uh, authentic 18 plus pound fish. So we, we know we have the right genetics, um, but it's it's very difficult to grow these these unicorns. But we're, we're trying some things. And, you know, Tom said this earlier, you, you do the best that you can to control the things that you can. And we have very few knobs that we can tweak and turn a little bit. And then, you know, some of it is uh, taking advantage of the, the right situations. And maybe you can't control that, like Orange Lake. You know, Orange Lake is in that window right now where it could absolutely grow an 18 plus pound fish. I mean, like I said, last year, we had a, a 1510 that was only 10 years old. Uh, we have seen fish in Florida as old as 16. That's the max age that we've ever seen. And they're incredibly rare. Uh, it's actually pretty rare for us to see a fish 12 plus in Florida. And that's one of the disadvantages that we, that we have here in Florida is we don't get the longevity here that Texas and California and some other places. I believe both Dottie and Ethel were 19 years old when they when they died, which is older than any fish that we've ever aged in Florida. And we're talking about thousands, thousands of fish. Um, they just don't exceed 16 years old here. You know, we have shallow basin, highly vegetated lakes here and, and they're hot. The conditions are just harsher. But when these bass have been transplanted into these reservoirs, that are deeper, they have cooler water access during the hotter times of the year. Um, there's just some advantages that these Florida bass have in other places that they that they don't have in Florida. Um, but you know, we're we're looking at not only trout, but even native forage augmentation with Lake Chub suckers. We've we've demonstrated a strong correlation between trophy bass populations and Lake Chub suckers. Um, we're we're trying some stuff. Um, borrowing from Georgia's playbook, doing female-only management, where we, we drain lakes down and we start over and we manage them at very low densities with only female, and we do uh, high forage augmentation, so really intensive management. And then I mentioned the Mississippi renovations earlier, which was a, a big player in production of, of trophy bass in Mississippi, and that's something that we're doing here in Florida as well. We sort of reset the clock drain drain these small reservoirs down 
and then refill them back up and get that new reservoir effect in an aging reservoir. And so we, we have some, some tools in our toolbox that are a little bit unorthodox, but have been highly effective under other scenarios. And, you know, those are all individual tools and we're trying to marry as many of those tools together as we can. We, we call it the kitchen sink. You know, we're throwing the kitchen sink at it and trying to create these windows. And we know they won't last that long because, you know, it, it takes on average uh, 9.8 years in Florida to get to 10 pounds. And they were about 10 years. So you have to get an exceedingly fast growing fish or one that lives a very long time to, to make those unicorns. I mean, that's that's why they are so rare. Uh, I want to ask all you guys. On, I'm okay. sorry, BG, go, man. Uh, um, those uh, female only parties you guys are putting on. How how does that work? Like, the, there's no spawn. There's He's no. He's talking about bass, BTC. Uh, hey, it's it's a metaphor for life. Okay. So, so, so what goes on there? Like, yes, it, it, it's difficult to maintain. I mean, you have to have an isolated system that even at high water doesn't get connectivity, no feeder streams or anything like that. Uh, so it has to be a completely isolated system, and you have to completely drain the lake and or wrote on the lake to ensure that you're starting with nothing. And then you got to establish a forest forage base. And then we can grow fish out at the, the hatchery and sex them with a hundred percent verification at a, at a year old. And, you know, we can pit tag them. We can keep uh, pit tag is like a unique identifying tag that could go into every fish and we can, we can essentially monitor the growth of every fish in the pond. We can we can uh, estimate the population size through mark recapture to try and target those those densities that we're looking for. You know, it's it can be challenging to to have a low density population where you're trying to maximize growth, but actually have enough fish to get some catches. But there's but there's no spawn, right? No spawn. Clearly. No. So, no, so if you're doing it right, there's no spawn. And I will say in Georgia, uh, they were able to grow a 13-pound bass in, in four years, uh, which is pretty impressive. But whoa, probably whoa. The, the most impressive uh, fish out there is the Mississippi state record fish, which was over 18 pounds. 18.15, 1991. Anthony Denny. Okay, go that, ahead. That fish was <laughs> That fish, that? Was six, that fish was six years old. No Oh, way. my God. Its age was known, and that fish had actually been tagged by Mississippi Parks and Wildlife the, the previous spring. So for me, that's one of the most impressive, you know, not, not even that close to a world record, but a 16-year-old 18-pound fish is just remarkable. I think I misspoke. Six, six. I believe it was December 31st, 92, but go ahead, BTC. Sorry. You said... That 18 pounder was how old? Six. Oh my God. So, did it uh, physically, did it have a small mouth on it? It had to, right? Yeah. I mean, smaller than you would expect. Right, right. Because I've noticed that before. Um, and so, you know, an eight pounder, I, I was there when somebody caught in, in uh, North Carolina and it had it had a small okay. mouth on it. You could just tell it grew fast. Karita's bass seem to have a small mouth for the size. Now, I don't know a 20 plus pound fish, what size their mouth should be, but I feel like it looked different than other fish 
you know, yeah. California fish of that size. I'll tell you, it's kind of funny. You talk about Ethel, you know, saying Ethel was 19 years old. Well, none of those years, she, she was in Bass Pro's hands. I mean, so she was caught November 26, 1986. So Fort, Fort closed in 1980. So, uh, you know, fish caught out of Fort Reservoir six years old. There was some pre-stocking going on, sure. Was she really 10 when she went up there? I don't know. She might have been a younger fish, too. Uh, but even if she was 19 years old, probably reason she got 19 years old is because she had nine years of some extremely damn good fish health care, too, happening, you know. And so so she ended up being world record size. I mean, if you look in the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame right now, uh, the aquarium there at Warner's of Wildlife, there's a 15-pound bass. Well, bass that we sent up there at 15 pounds from a private research lake, and, and that sucker's, you know, 21, 22 pounds. You know, we had Texas Star here. Uh, in captivity, and uh, Texas Star was a you know twenty plus pound bass as well, and so these fish have those potential, and it's just what all do they need? What else can we do in a in a real world setting? Do they get the length of time that they need? Do they have the right density, population densities, right? Do they have the right forage base? I mean, you talk about water level manipulation. You know, what we call it in Texas natural. Stock on the rise and publicize out west, you know, and it <laughs> rains come and that habitat's going to get flooded. I mean, you got 20 foot rises and we stock the heck out of it and be ready, you know, to take advantage of that for sure. So we've seen what, what gobies are doing with smallmouth, right? It's sort of like the, you know, trout candy is for largemouth. Um, any, any efforts to kind of cross breed gobies with the trout? <laughs> <laughs> Trobies. How many Trobies? bottles are empty behind you there, BTC? Hey, <laughs> I'm thinking I'm an ideas guy, all right? Man, it's getting way after dark. It's going like to be. I like it. I hope Uber's a sponsor for you, Ken. I, I, well, I 40, 40 foot walk up to the house. <laughs> He's in oh, his garage. He has, the, he has the coolest garage in America, in my opinion. It's amazing. That's right. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, maybe this is an offbeat question. I don't know. One of the things that fascinated me about uh, the California aspect of the record chase, you know, 20 plus years ago, and I want to ask Monty about this first, is it created a really poisonous culture, I thought, of bass fishermen. Guys who, if you caught a big fish, the first word out of everybody else's mouth was not congratulations, it was liar. Right. Or have <laughs> you. Or have you. I mean, yeah, you know, there you go. Liar, cheater, right? Lawbreaker. Jed, Jed Dickerson's crew and Mac Weekly, those guys were always fighting with Mike Long. And I remember going to see Porter Hall, Jason, and uh, the first thing he asked me when he picked me up at the at Jackson Airport and uh, in Mississippi, and he said, he said, "Is Bob Krupe still fishing?" You know, I had this like, kind of crazy, like kind of kind of competition thing going on, but it also created. You know, I had a whole chapter in there about, but what, what I called bass holes. Uh, you know, people who are cheating. You know, I mean, once once something gets to this, you know, level where it means something to a lot of people, then you get all the the asshole cheaters start coming in. The people stuffing weights down in the fish, and you know, I remember the the true family. I think they were. It was a mom and son, uh, Leah and Javad, exactly yeah. duo who were just. I mean, they just kept they, they cheated once, they cheated again. I mean, they were just ridiculous. So yeah, it doesn't create. You know. It, it should create like healthy competition, but of course it doesn't, right? I mean, it's, got, it, it's just the way it goes. 
it's unfortunate. Would, would another big bass craze or world record craze regenerate that kind of culture? <laughs> If anything, we're a more divisive nation than we were back then, I think. So the answer, my answer would be yes. I mean, that's a fine point, sir. It's a fine <laughs> point. Conspiracy yeah. theories. And I mean, I mean, oh my God, it would be a disaster, but it would be fun. You know, someone could get a good book out of it. <laughs> well, I, I hope it's you, man, because then I know it'd be a great book, not a good book. Tom, there's a lot of guys chasing big fish out in Texas. What's the culture like for that? Some of it's really good. You know, I don't know that it's a, it's a creator of, of, of bass holes, as you say. I think it's a great revealer of it, right? Wow. I, I mean, hmm. I, I, nice observation. You know, I, I think, it, I think it, it, it helps to unveil, you know, who some people truly are, because there are people that are genuinely excited for you. And then there's some people that look like the Incredible Hulk. They're so green with envy, you hmm. know, and uh, and that doesn't bring out the, the best in, in folks. So. You know, I, I hate that part of it, and I hope we can rise up and be better than that. I hope we can rise up and be better than that for a lot of things in our country, right? But oh uh, yeah, well that you know, but that's a whole that's a whole nother series. But, uh, yeah, well, now, Jason, I was going to go to you, Jason, because if if anybody is actively chasing a state or world record in the state of Florida, I don't know about it. What where, you, where is your experience in that world? Uh, I don't know about it either. I mean, so Porter lives in the state of Florida. Now. Right. Um, but I, you know, I don't think he's actively pursuing it because him and I agree. It doesn't live in the state of Florida. Right Ouch. Now. You're, you're hurting me, Jason. You're hurting me personally well, now, but you know, I mean, we're working on that. I mean, we're okay. We recognize it doesn't mean that we don't have some of the best trophy bass fish in the world. And we make 13 to 15 pounders and thousands of eight to 10 pounders. Um, but those top end fish, they're they're difficult to make, and you know we're we've got this new initiative called the Florida Trophy Bass Project, and some of the research I talked about earlier and management strategies I talked about earlier are under that umbrella, and that's just one arm of it. The other is documentation. You know, not only do we want to produce these fish, we want them to be caught, we want them to get documented through the yeah. Trophy Catch program, and then we want to promote that. And and I mean, we want Florida to be broadly recognized among you know the top and, and I, I do think that texas california and florida are the the top three would would we like to be number one absolutely uh but that's a you know that's a soft metric it, it's in the eye of the beholder it's it's where you live or you know what experiences you you have from polk from county drop some trout in polk county <laughs> i did uh, want to share a quick porter story just to, to speak yeah the please guy that that he is you know you talked about all these characters in this quest for the big bass and and, and porter's just the most the most honest and, and and true to the the data guy i mean i've combed through his records he has he has you may have too monty when you went and visited him i mean he's got log books from when back when he was in high school of all of his catches that he records and he's so meticulous and, and so true it, to it. I was in Mississippi with him and he caught one. He had a spring scale. And so it kind of measured in quarter pound increments, not necessarily to the ounce. And he caught a fish that was like right at 13, but, you know, kind of teetering between 12 and three quarter and 13. So I had digital scales in my box and I pulled them out and I weighted it. And it was, it was either 12, 14 or 12, 15. He did not count that as a 13 pounder in his in his logbook. I mean, and he keeps on by, you know, club level or pound yeah. level. So, I mean, one ounce, two ounce that it, it didn't make the mark. 
I would have counted as a 16. Uh, <laughs> now, I want to say this about, about Jason and about Florida too. You know, when we have some success and we have some things going on, one of the things that we see is people starting to say, man, I wish my state, what well, my state didn't care. My, I wish my state had share locker. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And, and, uh, and, and I want to say I'm, I'm rooting for, for Jason and, and Florida, you know, fish and wildlife success. And I know, He's rooting for our success too. We're we're fellow biologists that put our heart and soul. You know, all of our teams do. We got, you know, teams of biologists in our states and everything that they can. And and uh, you know, our program that works here may not work over there, but but we certainly learn from each other. And and uh, I, you know, I just want to say I, we're rooting for Florida to do the best that they can, and as we can learn from that, and and vice versa. You know, so uh, I applaud their efforts and uh, want them to keep pumping out big bass. They do a great job and. We're going to keep learning from them, try to do uh, do that here too. Wow. Yeah, I mean, ditto. I mean, the, the trophy catch program was obviously heavily influenced by the share lunker program. And I think in time, the trophy catch program has influenced the, the share lunker program. Yep. So, um, you know, definitely rooting for each other. And, you know, I, I think um, I, I'm not familiar with every water body in, in the country and who's chasing what, but, my money right now, if there were to be a world record caught in the next year, would be OH Ivy. And wow. I'm, just, I'm wondering, you know, wh where do you think we're at in that trophy bass window on Ivy? And um, does well, it have a shot at making a, a 20 pounder? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, it's Ken's show though. You want me to answer that, Ken? Of course I do. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is why we bring you guys together. And we don't hey, tell somebody, you who's who, but we want you guys to engage with each other too. We enjoy, and I love that you so, have. Somebody asked real quick, do any and how many of the states work together? And I'll say Jason referred to the American Fisheries Society earlier, the largest and oldest society of fisheries professionals in the world, started in 1870. And that said, we absolutely do. We all, you know, are part of the, typically part of the same professional society where we're trying to create new knowledge and work together and learn from each other. So uh, all, all of us, we're calling each other. I mean, that's, that's why we don't necessarily like it when people talk talk bad about other states because we know that they're doing the best that they can with what they have and, and their abilities. But but anyway, back to back to OHIV, uh, man. I we do a lot of praying for rain in Texas. I'll tell you that. And uh, one of the things that made Ivy great was the pulses and the timing of our stockings and things that came together. Um, you know, we had a lot of a lot of share luckers come in in uh, 2010, 2011 out of Ivy. And we got some great stockings and some good water level rises to support those. So you had not just one new reservoir effect, you had multiple new reservoir effects uh, happening there. Um, could it happen at Ivy? I think it could happen at Ivy. Um, I do worry that we're a little bit on the back end of it right now, frankly. As we've seen, uh, the lake go from 50% you know, water down to 30% water and storage capacity. Uh, as you see some of these fish starting to age out of the system, you see fish being pulled across the scales in July and August, right? You know, look, I got a 12 pounder. That's fantastic. It's dead. It's not going to get any bigger now. And and that's what I was referring to is, is we have seen a couple of those fish, you know, that were a little bit smaller as recaptures. And so that worries me that some of those fish are getting over the hill, but it's not just one year class. There are multiple year classes. So I think we're going to see another great year at Ivy, but uh, I think it's, 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 it's starting to go down a little bit. If we get the right rains, it's had a lot of wonderful stockings 
we get the right rains, we can take advantage of some of this habitat that's been been growing on the shoreline, and uh, and see some prey, you know, uh, pop off there. So I'll tell you where I really think is that that we're going to see great fish come out of ivy, but I think ivy has had so much focus on it, and and so many you had a lot of these big bass chasers out there leaving some of our other lakes alone, and I think there's a lot of other great lakes that haven't really been touched, you know. Fork has been down the last couple of years in part because there was a, a little bit of a drawdown, right? And so there were some nice fish being caught, but they weren't catching them. People weren't really, you know, they couldn't go to their normal spots. And so they're having, they're being forced to learn. You don't have some of your big bass specialists fishing there, right? They're going elsewhere, maybe not fishing as much or as hard. Now Fork's, I think, going to actually produce some this year. I think it's going to come on. Toledo Bend, Rayburn, of course, those are your, you know, ones you're always going to look at. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, especially some of, even some of our smaller lakes. Nacogdoches is one that's just tremendous. Cho Canyon is a tremendous lake. Uh, we've seen Austin come back with some fish again. Uh, so there's a there's a host of fisheries out there. I'm going to tell you what, there's a lake you guys probably never heard of, but I bet you J.B. Thomas produces some Sherlockers this year, and it's far out west too. And so uh, so we'll see how that, how that kind of pops off, but to say it, I don't want to go that far. You've already uh, you've already thrown Alan's words in my face uh, tonight. I don't want you to have the ability to throw my own words in my face later. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be conservative on that and say well, I'll have a transcript of this, Tom, and I will call you out on it in a couple of years. I'll say I'll, I'll hope for the best, but uh, I think it's going to be a great fishery still this year. But I but I think it's it's going on the slide, and we need some rain. So pray for rain. Could I ask Jason on the topic of rain, Jason and Tom, this question, um, you know, as we know, Southern California in particular has been in a 20 year, 20 year plus mega drought. And uh, I wonder if that had an effect on the size of their bass possibly. And the second part of the question would be, would all the rains this year, they've had an incredible amount of rain. Could that possibly boost California up again? Could they start the bass maybe, could it rejuvenate the bass fishing, the big bass fishing out there? Terrific question. Thank you, Monty. You're welcome. Yes. I'm not super familiar uh, with how the water levels fluctuate in those reservoirs in Southern California. Um, you know, that they may be able to artificially keep it higher than like some of the natural lakes when it goes into droughts, but assuming it, it goes, it does go way down, then yeah, that's, that's um, not, not going to be great for the production of these big bass at the, it was mentioned earlier the trout stocking program largely went away, and I think that yeah. has been a, a huge player in the reduction of those big fish out there. But, yeah, if, if it spikes and comes back up, I mean, that's what we want. That's how Florida historically operated and what, you know, all those giant upper teens and 20-pound fish in the early 1900s were produced under those conditions in Florida. We just don't get those conditions anymore. Right. But we've stabilized our, our water levels and we manage them, you know, in, into these really small windows and we don't get the drastic. So that's what you want. I mean, I think that's yeah. what Tom got at Ivy. And if, if, if uh, that happened in California, I would expect it to make a bunch of big fish. Yeah. So, so if we melt some ice, uh, you know, some of those icebergs and glaciers, that should raise water levels, hence improving bass fishing. Am I correct? Only in the ocean, though. Uh, well, so we just got to channel it to the reservoirs. Yeah. Desalinize it and put it in the reservoir. It's a small, small price to pay for a world record, Monty. Come on. 
Come on. <laughs> All right, guys. I don't want to keep you too long, but I do have one more question that that I think we gotta. I gotta I ask too, before we can wrap the show. Okay, well, you go first because I think this. I might maybe I've got the show that I feel like we gotta wrap on. I understood. I, I wanted to follow up with Tom. You said uh, multiple new reservoir effects, and mm -hmm. I, I was just curious what you meant by that. Well, when we talk about a, a new reservoir effect, you know, you close the close the gate and you have a lot of habitat, a lot of trees, brush, other things in, in the bottom of the lake, right? Well, well, when that lake fills up, you know, the first day they do, they start declining, right? They start deteriorating. And so uh, that habitat, as it starts to decline, over time, you see the ability of that fishery to produce so much start to decline as well. Well, so that is a new reservoir effect. So we talk about that boom, right? You get all this great habitat flooded, prey base, all this comes right, boom, huge fisheries, and that declines. Well, when we have water level that, that goes down and it stays down for a while, you start to see a lot of that regrow in yep. what will be the lake bed. And so when that yep. water comes up, that's what we call that new reservoir effect is it floods that again. When I'm referring to multiple new reservoir effects is it's not like ivy filled up. Ivy's only been full once, right? It came up and then it came up further and then there was a pause and then it came up further. And so okay. it was multiple new reservoir effects affecting that same cohort of fish, that same, you know, that same class of fish yep. got to enjoy a, a boom and then they got another boom and then they got another yep. boom, right? And so, okay. yes, it's about water level rises. It's also about timing of those water level rises as well right. as everything else that we're doing. And that's what I was saying is, as we did our, our part right, right? We, we were stocking Sherlocker offspring in there. We were stocking pure Floridas in there. We were doing additional habitat work. We had the right regulations on it. And then Mother Nature helped us out too, you know? So that really, that's a challenge. That's the real challenge of fishery science. The challenge of science is managing with, with knowns and unknowns, right? You, yeah. gotta, you gotta take your best guess with the data that you have and and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't and when it doesn't work out uh you know that's that's tough uh but when it does work out you know good things really good things happen and uh, that, that really worked out there right on thank you all right, all right guys i got one more question for you and it might be the toughest question we've had tonight i don't know um monty let me start with you what's it going to take to rekindle the furor and the excitement of the world record chase that we had until about 20 years ago. Well, it sounds like what Tom and Jason are on the right track, what they're doing in their, in their respective states for sure. I, I would think a 20 plus bass out of wherever it came from, California, Texas, Florida, uh, would, would do a lot. Um, and maybe, you know, multiple ones, maybe one or two of these, yeah. you know, unicorns so that people know that they exist again, or, you know, that, 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 that would give people maybe hope and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the sort of get up and go to go, to go try to do this again. Uh, so I think, I think we, I think what we need is, I guess the bottom line is I would say we need evidence that these fish are ah, out there. That's a great evidence is just the right word. Monty Burke, you're constantly proving you're far more articulate than me. I'm jealous, but that's okay. Jason, what do you think? What's it going to take to fire it up again? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think what Monty said was great. You know, we we need we need to see those fish. You know, uh, we need to see some of them start to show up. 
you know, if, if California would start planting trout again the way that they were, uh, or maybe other states, wink, wink, start planting <laughs> trout like that, maybe we see them start to show up. And when they start to show up, people get fired up. No question. Hey, Tom, what do you think? What's it going to take to start the Fuhrer again? Well, you got to make them and people got to catch them. And uh, that's what we've been trying to do is, is certainly make them so people can catch them. You guys are hitting the nail right on the head. You know, one thing Jason alluded to earlier is also getting those data. And so I want to say one of the things that, you know, our, our electro fishing doesn't collect those big bass, right? Uh, and the proportion they are in the population. So uh, Sherlocker to me is kind of one of the coolest citizen science projects out there. And so now any fish over eight pounds, people can enter on the app and share those data with us. And with that, they can take a few scales and mail those scales to us so that we can uh, learn more about those genetics uh of those and, and and pull those so we're we're seeing more relationships right and uh, that helps us to narrow down like these are the these are the genetics that we want these are the ones performing well these are the ones that we need to try to select for even in our hatcheries and and so i say all that not not just as a shameless plug if we want people to to go through the effort to send us some more scales and, and do genetics but science is doing its part science but but science takes time this is not Jurassic Park. It doesn't happen in two seconds. And so we continue to try to evolve and evolve the science to do the right things. And, and given that time, and if the other things pop off right, then we can have those fisheries and people start catching those fish. And, you know, live scope could be a part of that too. It doesn't do us any good if we make a 25 pound bass and nobody ever finds it and catches it, right? So you got to find them, you got to catch them. And Lord willing, you take care of those 12, 10, 12, 13, 14 pounders. So they have the, the length of time to get that big. So all that's just baked in the cake, Ken. And uh, I think over time, I think we'll, we'll start to see some more of that happen as fishery science continues on. And uh, the last thing, shameless plug, I'd say is you care about the future of fishing and the future of bass fishing. You got to care about our nation's reservoirs. And the best thing to do there is go support Friends of Reservoirs chapter and uh, and talk to your your folks uh, in the legislation to, to help continue to put money towards our bass fisheries and to put habitat towards our reservoirs too. BTC, I can talk to these guys all night long about this. This is a fascinating topic to me. I know it, I bet to a lot of our listeners, it seemed kind of esoteric, but wow, this was fun. Oh, I love it, man. This is my favorite. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Science. Jason Dotson, man introducing rainbow trout to Florida. Thanks so much, Jason, for joining us. We appreciate you, brother. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely our pleasure. Tom Lang, hey, folks, join Friends of Reservoirs. Take Tom's advice there. Keep an eye out on Sherlunker. Uh, they're producing some amazing catches out there, and they're doing the right things. Uh, I believe they're going to break the state record in the next 10 years. I'm no Alan Forsage, but that's my <laughs> prediction. Tom, thanks so much. We appreciate you, man. Thank you all. Tight lines, everybody. Thanks, Tom. Monty Burke, everybody needs these books, plus your book on Nick Saban, which I ordinarily would never plug because he's the Alabama head coach. But, man, we had so much fun with you on the show tonight. Really appreciate the insight. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate you. See you later, here, Monty. Appreciate you, man. BTC, that was so much fun for me. I, I love it, dude. You know, you know, I'm wild about science, so. Yeah, BTC is really into the science. I'm really into what it takes to, to
to produce big fish and, and to talk to those guys who, uh, they, you can't come up with a better panel than that. Um, we had the man from Florida who's putting rainbows in, in, in the state of Florida of all places, for God's sake. We got the guy who runs the hatchery out at uh, the Sherilyn <laughs> facility. We got Monty Burke, who's the the authority on the obsession of giant bass. This is a terrific book, really. Um, just a, that was an all-star panel. And that's what you get on Bass After Dark. Yes, indeed you do. And, and we put a lot of work into it. And guys, please, um, if you like what you're watching, like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, and so on, and so on. And uh, we put a lot of work into it. Um, so hope, yeah. hope to see it grow, you know, and, and kind of get out there in front of a lot of people. And, and we intend to put a lot of work into every show. And when we're not, we're out. So. Yeah, and you know, it's, I know, I know you've heard some comments from people who feel like we don't necessarily answer the questions that we pose. Well, I think that that a lot of times there's no simple answer, no simple straightforward answer. I mean, after all, we've got a conversation that's going for over an hour here, and that usually means there's there's not always a clear cut answer, or there's not a clear cut answer. But I, I think those guys came as close to answering the record, answer the question about what happened to the record chase, where the record chase is going, and what we can do to improve the chances to break the world record than we could have gotten anywhere else. Yeah. And, and they, and I forget who said it in the beginning, but like, it's not out there right now, you know? And that was, that was yeah. kind of sobering. It's like, oof, you know, yeah. and I kind of agree, like, sure, maybe it exists somewhere, but just kind of seems like things aren't lining up like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I wanted to get into, you know, the topic of, of private water and, and, you know, a 20 plus pound of record fish caught in private water. What would be the, you know, what would be public opinion and what would be, how would it be accepted? I, I'm pretty sure it would, it's would not be considered a, uh, a world record, but well, it, I, I don't believe there's any prohibition against public water by IGFA. I need to go and check that. I haven't checked it lately. Uh, but I, don't believe there's a pro, I don't believe there's a prohibition against public water for a world record under international game fish association rules. I need to check that and I'll let people know on our next show. Um, yeah. Well, but I will well, say that I'll uh, go ahead. I, I think, I think there's a left to their discretion. There's a discretion uh, clause in that. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of states don't recognize record fish caught from private water. Um, and of course, sometimes the distinction between public and private is, is sketchy. Like maybe you have to pay to get on it. Uh, does that mean you have to pay a, a buck or does that mean you have to pay $10,000 a year? You know, there's, there's a lot of gray area there, but you know, you talk about private waters and one of the places that Jason was alluding to uh, was a place called Titan Bass. You mentioned the, one of the richest guys in the world, Paul Tudor Jones. Well, Paul Tudor Jones owns his own fish hatchery and, and they're producing strains of bass they call Titan bass. And these fish are, are I'm probably getting this wrong. We need to have uh, the biologist out there, a terrific fisheries biologist and big bass expert named Josh Sackmar. We need to have him on the show at some point because Josh is, is producing these amazing fish that are, I think... Uh, they're all kind of varieties, but some of them are pure Floridas that have been genetically not engineered, but selected for rapid growth, high-end growth, and uh, aggressiveness. And I always joke that these fish at a topwater lure like it owes them money. Um, really? 
I had a chance to go out there and fish about a year and a half ago. And uh, they've got a couple of lakes out there. Both are spectacular. Some of the best fishing I've ever had. But on, on one of their lakes, they call Happy Lake, which is a perfect name for this place, by the way. I had a chance to get on the water with Greg Hackney. Now, admittedly, that's not fair. But in the first hour of fishing, and, and they wanted us to keep every fish we caught, put it in the live well, take it back to the dock so that Josh and his assistants could weigh the fish, run a wand over the fish because they were all, they all had a computer chip in them so they could identify each one and record the data about their growth and so forth. And these fish were all female. There was nothing over four years old. Well, in the first hour, Hackney and I caught six and the best five weighed 39.9. God! Really? Yeah. An eight pound average for fish that are less than four years old. They're four years old or less. How'd you hang with Hackney? Uh, well, I always enjoy Greg. Greg's remarkably insightful. I always learn stuff Numbers. about fishing with Happy. Oh, I think I did okay. I think I, I think I had about half of those initial six. Did you? I think so. You, you asked Greg, good. he might have a very different story, but I think I was doing okay, especially yeah, early. Yeah, Maybe yeah. he whacked me later. Yeah, that's that neat. <laughs> but, hey. uh, but if, if you run into Greg Hackney, I believe to this day, he'll tell you that was the the most impressive day of fishing he's ever experienced. And you know, he's been wow. some good places too. Indeed but, he has. But uh, Titan bass, they will not say that they're aggressively trying to grow a world record, but they are trying to grow the biggest bass they can. And those fish are for sale. So anybody who wants to buy some fish for private water, check out Titan Bass online. Right on. Now, let me ask you a question about our topic tonight. Uh, and then I know we got to get to uh, some other stuff, but uh, well, how do you feel about the the record chase? Are you optimistic that, that something's going to happen in the next few years, or are you pessimistic? Because a couple of years ago, I did, I did a story about California, and every California fisheries biologist, and I talked to one in every region, said there is no world record in California now, mm. which shocked me. Go ahead. Uh, I tend to uh, trust the experts, and when the science says that, you know, and they don't have any political leanings to lie to us, the public. Um, I kind of feel the same, just, just off a of gut feeling like it, you know, nothing's really what's been happening lately in Texas with OHIV, obviously. And, and uh, Tom said kind of what I was thinking, like Ivy's already there. Like, yeah, by the time everybody's hitting there and we're all hearing about it, it's already peaked. You're already right. behind. Because the locals have been smashing them there for a few years, and we're able to keep it quiet for a while, right? That's usually the, how that how that works. And by the time all the comic books, you know what's been going on at Orange, uh, you know, Jason was talking about Florida. That's been going on for a few years, you know, on the down low. Guys keep things quiet for a few years before it gets out. So, um, yeah, I I kind of think I kind of think the same. Like like Ivy's probably already peaked, and I don't have the the science to prove it but that was just my feeling on it and but there's other lakes that are on the come up but i don't see it right now i don't see how it's going to happen you know the things that set up for what happened in california it, it makes sense the type of lakes the type of forage you know the lack of pressure at that time um where's that going to happen next probably not in the united states my feeling that's a shame i hate to hear that 
Well, uh, how about uh, how about an intern situation? Did you want to, want to mention something about that? Yes. Uh, if there's anybody out there who wants to come hang out with us and become friends, pal around, could use some people uh, or use somebody to, you know, kind of help us grow this thing. You know, we're old. Ken's old, oldest old, and then we have Nathan, who's middle old. Um, use some fresh blood to kind of get us out there. Because uh, we're old guys playing a young man's game with this social media and all this, there, this, that, and the third. And of course, uh, one of my favorite parts of the show, my favorite part will probably always be the conversation. Uh, but our the the part we close out with the top ten list. I think we've got a I think we got a good one tonight. Yes, we do. We have for the holidays. We have the top ten angler inspired gifts for Christmas. And when you're ready, I'm ready. Oh, Nate. At number 10, we have Hank Parka. <laughs> number nine, subscription to Tommy Biffle's OnlyFans account. Oh. Number eight, relationship counseling with coaches Ben Milliken and Randy Blockett. <laughs> number seven. Gift certificate to Seth Fighter Supercuts. I mean, number six, tickets to the FSU Bass University Bowl game. <laughs> At number five, Patrick Walters short shorts. One size fits no one. <laughs> number four, a Skeet Reese fleece. And number three, hooked on phonics with Cliff Crochet. <laughs> the number two, autumn sweater weaved with Matt Robertson's hair and the number one angler inspired gift for Christmas this year advanced electronics with ring blocket only available on VHS <laughs> and there we go Woo! stirring round of applause Nate thank you love it love it yes Guys, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Ken, it was an awesome show. I loved it. I love the topic. And and seriously, dude, it was it was a good one. A blast. Thank you. Yes. Thank we'll you be back. for making it so. Yes. And we'll be back next week. Oh, shout out to James Riley for the best logo in bass fishing. Oh. Ken's buddy Ron Stallings for that intro. Uh our man Nathan in the back. He's on scene and on herd, but he does exist. And we will be back next week, 1228, with yes. Right, what is right. your bass fishing pet peeves? Looking for a more fun show, but you know, we're all over the place, but it's gonna be a blast. And we've got some a stellar cast. Always. Uh, Adios. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, thank you.